And Genesis chapter 32 will be where we begin this morning. In the beginning, we are seeing that the gospel is an essential part of the story of Scripture from its foundation, from the beginning. And we're working our way through Genesis, not chapter by chapter, verse by verse per se, as we typically do when we study our way through a book of the Bible, but more thematically in the sense that we are looking at the key characters in Genesis. And through looking at these characters and their lives and their stories, we see the gospel woven into the the very fabric of Scripture's foundation. And then, of course, the connecting point for us is how we can identify personally, on a personal level, because we see the gospel woven into our story as well. It's a part of who we are when we understand what God is doing in our lives and his story as it intersects each one of us at, uh, at, at our particular place. We find ourselves looking at the story of Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, and, and especially at this point, we're going to see where Jacob wrestles with God in Genesis 32 in verse 22 in, in just a moment. Before we get into that, I, I want to talk just for a moment about sports. I love sports. I grew up a big fan of sports uh, to this day. I, uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of sports. If you get in my truck at any particular time, you're going to find the radio is tuned to uh, sports radio. I, I like to listen to sports talk radio. I like to read Bleacher Report and the different, you know, uh, the different, I've got the alerts set up on my phone so that anytime something happens with the thunder, you know, any kind of trade rumors or they sign this person or that person or anytime, you know, uh, we're building up toward football season and so all the, the hype and all the news about OU and what's going to be happening with the, I, I love all that. I, I eat it all up. I love sports. I, I, I've always loved sports. My earliest, perhaps my earliest memory of sports at all is actually of my great-grandmother. We would go, at times in my childhood, we would go to my grandparents' house, and my great-grandmother, my grandfather's mother, would be at their home, and she would be staying for a few days. My great-grandmother, Sarah, was her name. And Sarah would come, and she would stay. And one of the things that I remember just vividly is that my great-grandma, Sarah, loved, loved professional wrestling. Now, I don't know if you consider that a sport or not, uh, but she loved it. I have this vivid memories of this woman sitting in front of the TV and yelling at the wrestlers, right? Get him! Go! No! Don't! You know, I, I just remember it. So the, the picture in my mind, I, and we thought it was hilarious. We just got such a kick out of my, my elderly great-grandmother and the way that she was so passionate passionate about wrestling. So uh, some of my earliest memories of sports are about wrestling, or as she would call it, wrestling, right? More wrestling. This was wrestling. Now, uh, obviously, uh, wrestling as a sport, and I don't mean wrestling as an entertainment, but wrestling as a sport, if you, right, Olympic style or, uh, you know, whatever you might consider to be the, the real, quote unquote, I, I use that real wrestling, right, is actually a, a, an incredible sport because it requires an insane amount of uh, endurance. Any, anybody in the room that's ever wrestled knows that, I mean, you have to be fit to wrestle because it, uh, it, it, requires, it requires, I should say rather, just an incredible amount of endurance. You've got to have great 
cardiovascular strength, but physical strength as well. You're using all of your body, right? And, and so uh, it's not just upper body strength, lower, it's, it's core strength, it's all of it together. Wrestling is really a, a great sport. And even in the truest sense, many wrestlers would tell you that wrestling is the first sport, right? That the original sport, the original game that mankind invented was wrestling. Now, we don't know that to be true, and certainly we can't go back to the Scriptures and find, you know, uh, evidence of that in the Scriptures necessarily. That misses the point entirely. But we do find a story in Genesis chapter 32 of where Jacob is wrestling, and he's wrestling here with God, as we're going to see. Now, Part of the question that we'll consider is, what does it mean that Jacob wrestled with God? Does it mean that he literally physically wrestled against God? Was it God? Was it an angel of the Lord? What, who was this figure that he wrestles with? And, and what does it mean? Were they contending? Was it, was it uh, sort of vision of sorts that he had? Was it, was it, um, was it physical activity, right? The, the physically, were they wrestling? And, and, and so all of these things will kind of come to the surface as we read the story and, and study this. But this is a fascinating, fascinating story about Jacob. But what's so key about this story, okay? And, and I want to lay this out from the beginning. This is where we're going to end ultimately, but I want to lay this out from the beginning because I want you to be looking for this as we study our way through this text is that the key point in this part of Jacob's life and his story is that God intersects Jacob where he is. God finds Jacob, if you will, where Jacob is. And that God has this encounter with him and that through understanding the, the nature of God and understanding that, that he was wrestling literally with God himself, that Jacob surrenders himself to God. So he, he starts out wanting to contend with God, wanting to wrestle with God, wanting to try to have his way with God and manipulate God into doing what he would have him to do. And ultimately, what Jacob does is he surrenders. And as he surrenders to God, God changes his identity, changes not only his name, we'll see, but also just his very identity changed at this point. And that when we have an encounter with God. God wants, to, God wants to find us where we are, much as we see that he finds Jacob where he is. And that God's desire is that through surrender to him, that, that he might change our identity as well. And in that we find a beautiful picture of the gospel in the story of Jacob's life. In Genesis 32, let's start reading in verse 22, and we'll just read out the, the latter half of Genesis 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Now, that same night, right? We obviously, clearly, we are, we are picking the story up sort of in, in the midst of the story. We're, we're jumping into the middle part of a story that's happening here. So let's catch up with, with what has taken place and what has led to this moment. Last week, we studied the part of Jacob's life where Jacob received a blessing that was not rightly his because he, he stole it, essentially. He deceived his father, deceived his, his older brother Esau, who deserved the, the blessing, the primary inheritance as the oldest born. But yet Jacob deceived his brother and his father, received that blessing from his father Isaac. 
And then afterward, he has fled to the, to the country of his mother, to live amongst his mother's family. His mother's father was a man named Laban. And so Jacob has left his homeland. He has left his family, what he knew, and he has traveled to the land of his mother's family, to the, the land of Laban, and for years now has sojourned in the land there and, and has developed quite the, quite the, uh, the, the household in, in all of this. And, and again, we've jumped all the way from Genesis 22 to Genesis 32, and a lot has taken place over this, the, the course of time. But Jacob has built a lot of wealth. He has developed his household greatly, and not only for himself, but also for his father-in-law Laban. He managed his father-in-law's household and his father-in-law's assets, and, and they both grew in wealth. Their households grew. Jacob has had many sons at this point. He marries uh, an interesting part of Jacob's story. He marries a set of sisters. He marries, he marries Leah first because she was the oldest, but he thought he was marrying her younger sister, Rachel, which was the one that he fell head over heels with at an instant when he saw her. And yet, over time, if you know that part of the story, then, then Jacob has sons, 12 sons, in fact, with his wives and his wives' servants. And you can go back and you can read these chapters that we're jumping over to get to this part of the story. But now Jacob has come to a crossroads of sorts in his life where he is separating himself from his father-in-law, Laban. He is leaving behind Laban and, and all of Laban's house and all of Laban's goods, and he's taking his own family, his own possessions, his own goods, and he's going back to the land of his father Isaac, which means he's returning back to Esau, his older brother, who the last time that we saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill Jacob for what Jacob has done. And true to his, true to his character, true to who he is, on the way out with Laban, he sort of swindles Laban as well on the way out and, and deceives him. And, and so as he's leaving, Laban pursues him, ultimately overtakes Jacob, and then searches for his own, his own idols, his own gods, which Jacob unknowingly has in his possession because his wife Rachel has taken them. When Laban doesn't find these he blesses Jacob and his family and sends them on their way. And so at this point in the story, Jacob is about to cross over into his homeland, in, back into his, the land of his family. And he knows that as he does this, he is going to encounter his brother Esau. And he's fearful because he believes that Esau, for all he knows, Esau is still mad at him and wants to kill him for what he has done. So Jacob divides his, his household in two between his two wives and, and he divides their, the household goods. And his theory, you see, his, his thinking is that, well, if Esau attacks one, then the other will be able to get away. And so at least I'll have half my family and half of my goods, right? That's his thinking in all of this. And so we find here that Jacob has divided his family, and he took his two wives and these two uh, divisions of his family. They cross over the river, the ford of Jabbok, and then now... Jacob crosses back, and he's going to spend the night there in prayer before going out the next day to meet his brother Esau, all right? That's a lot of backstory, but that's what's happening here with, with Jacob. So let's read verse 23. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. 
And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip and socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And so this is a very interesting story of Jacob as he wrestles with this man, as he wrestles with this figure prior to this climactic moment in his life story where he's about to re-encounter his brother Esau that he cheated years ago. And as we look at this text this morning, I want us to see five different things from Jacob's story here, five different pieces to the story that ultimately connect us to our own need for the gospel, because we'll find the gospel woven into Jacob's story as we look at these five things. The first one is this. We see that Jacob isolated himself from others. Verse 23 tells us that he took all of his family, all of his children, all of his servants, all of his animals, all of his possessions, and he and he crossed the river with them into his homeland, into his, his home country. And then Jacob remained by himself across the stream. And there it was that he wrestles with this figure. Jacob has isolated himself from everybody else prior to this, this climactic moment with, with Esau. And what's interesting about this is that this tends to be the pattern in Jacob's life. Jacob tends to isolate himself from others. Jacob tends to do his own thing. And and when you look at his life, the pattern that plays itself out in his life again and again is that Jacob deceives people. He, He cheats them or he lies to them. He's deceptive in some way, that there's, there's something in his hand, as it were, that Jacob is not showing, and that he's always trying to work to manipulate the situation, to manipulate others, to get his way. And in this is the very, essentially the very heart of Jacob's character. He's a deceiver. We talked about last week that even his name itself, his name itself, Jacob, means deceiver, basically. His name means that he's a liar, And so it's a part of his character. It's a part of his story. It's who he was. And we find him here falling into the same pattern, the same behavior, the same things that he's done again and again in his life. He's isolated himself from everybody else. You know, the truth is, what we see in Jacob's story is that typically when he isolates himself from others, then trouble is soon to follow. And The reality is that for a lot of us, we can identify because when we isolate ourselves from others, when we aren't honest and open, most especially with God, but also with one another, 
in that isolation tends to be the place where we find ourselves falling into sin. That happens in Jacob's life, and we can identify. We can, we can relate, because I would be willing to bet that most of the time when you, when you stumble and fall into sin, particularly the sins that become habitual for you, the things that you fall into again and again, what you find is that you have somehow isolated yourself from others. You, you've not been honest and transparent with others. And, and in fact, the accountability that comes with real transparency can be a great tool in helping us to, to wrestle against sin and, and helping us to wage war against the sin in our lives. And Jacob, in his isolation here, has essentially set himself up for this moment. So Jacob isolated himself from others, we see, but also we see that Jacob wrestled with his past. Still, at this part of the story, Jacob is wrestling against his past. Now, it's interesting that that is somewhat of a figurative statement, right? It's a metaphorical statement. You can't physically wrestle with the past, but you can physically wrestle with another person. And that's exactly what Jacob does here, is Jacob wrestles with this man wrestles with this figure. But what I want you to see is that the, the, if we can say the physical wrestling match that takes place is really indicative of something deeper here. It's indicative of Jacob wrestling with his past, wrestling with his identity, wrestling with his very, his very nature. And so this, this, this person, now one of the questions that we could ask here is, who is this man that Jacob wrestles with? It just says simply that a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, is this man, is this, is this God? Is this a man? Is it an angel? Is, how are we to know who this figure is? Well, one of the, I think one of the most compelling ways for us to ask or to answer, excuse me, that question is just to look within the text itself and to see Jacob's own understanding. Look at verse 30. Jacob names this place Peniel, which means, you see, if you look at the footnote in your Bible, or the, the notes, if you've got a study Bible, you're going to see that this means the face of God. The face of God. Pen is the Hebrew word for face. L is the word for God, and E is just the connecting. This is the, the face of God. Is, and the reason that Jacob named this place the face of God is because he understood that I met God face to face. Now, we would refer to this figure as a theophany, okay? That's a fancy word, right? I'll explain better what that means in just a minute. But we would refer to this, this, this figure here, this man, as a theophany. Let me read to you from Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible. This is going to sound somewhat um, academic in the way that this explains this, but I'll, I'll make some comments after. First, I just read to you a, a simple definition of what a theophany is. A study of these passages reveals that the angel of the Lord appeared in human form and performed normal human functions, yet he was an awe-inspiring figure, exhibiting divine attributes and prerogatives, including predicting the future, forgiving sin, and receiving worship. These are all things that the angel of the Lord does in, in the different instances where he appears in the Old Testament. The title, Angel of the Lord, is particularly striking because it is used in many of these passages interchangeably with the terms Yahweh and God in such a way as to leave little doubt that the angel is a manifestation of God himself. 
Nevertheless, at the same time, the angel and God clearly are not equated because the angel often refers to God in the third person. So this is a theophany. This is, this is one of these manifestations of God in a physical form. You may say, well, but the text only refers to this as a man. How, where do you get that this is an angel? That actually comes from the broader Old Testament understanding, especially in the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 12, in verses 3 and 4, we see in the womb, speaking of Jacob here, in the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God, Hosea 12.3 says. And then in Hosea 12.4, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. And so the Old Testament interprets itself to say that this is the angel of the Lord. This figure here is the angel of the Lord that Jacob is wrestling with. This theophany, this manifestation of God in a physical form. What's interesting is the fact that Jacob wrestled with God because Jacob wrestled with everyone. In the womb, Jacob wrestled with Esau, his brother. From birth, Jacob and Esau wrestled against one another. They contended with one another for the affection of their father and their mother. Throughout his life, with his, with his wives, Jacob wrestles for the wife that he, that he prefers, Rachel, even though he was given Leah. Again and again, the pattern in Jacob's life is that he's wrestling with people. He's, he's contending with others, contention with others, conflict is, is a, a pattern throughout Jacob's life. It's a part of who he is. And what we see here is that in wrestling with this figure, it brings to the forefront the very nature of who Jacob was. He was a deceiver. He was a wrestler. He was a a cheater by nature. And as Jacob wrestles with God, literally here, he realizes some, some bigger things about who he is. And he sees the pattern in his own life. And so as he wrestles with God, ultimately... Jacob comes face to face with who he is. And he comes face to face with his character. And he doesn't particularly like what he sees, which is why he asks for a blessing here. When he realizes that this is God, he asks for a blessing. He won't let go of the man's heel. He's going to hold on to his heel until he receives a blessing. Now, Remember last week we saw in the story, Jacob sought a blessing from his father-in-law that he didn't deserve. And still to this day, years later, Jacob is in pursuit of a blessing. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jacob has never truly been satisfied. So the third part of the story is that Jacob sought a blessing from God. Jacob isolated himself from others. Jacob wrestled with his past. Jacob sought a blessing from God. In spite of the blessing that he received from his father Isaac, Jacob was never truly satisfied. His father gave to him great possessions, great wealth. Jacob built up great wealth in the household of his father-in-law, Laban. And yet, he was never satisfied by any of it. It was never enough because Jacob, there was something in his person, something in his character that he had never truly dealt with. And so, in spite of all the things that he had, there was an emptiness. We see this in his story, right? He thought that the blessing from his father would make him happy, but it didn't. 
He thought that marrying Rachel would make him happy, but it didn't. He thought that having children would make him happy. God blessed him with many children. I didn't do it for him. He thought that great wealth, great possessions, animals, livestock, money, things, that that would provide the, 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 the answer for the void inside of his chest. But that didn't do it. Why? Because what Jacob was ultimately seeking couldn't be found in the things of this world. Now, as we come to the point in, in, in the study where we begin to overlap our story and our lives with the life of Jacob, we need to understand this truth that is essential to the story of Jacob, but is also equally essential in our own lives. There is a longing inside of us. There is a longing inside our hearts for something that will never truly be satisfied, but through a relationship with God. Jacob sought to fill that with all kinds of things, and he was never satisfied. We can search to try to fill that void with material possessions, with relationships, with with uh, building a name for ourselves and our reputation. We can try to fill that with the things that we do in this life. And yet what we'll find is the exact same thing that Jacob found to be true. That until he reached the point of surrender before God, he was never truly satisfied. So Jacob sought a blessing from God. It tells us in the story that they wrestled throughout the night. And then verse 25 says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Now, it's interesting, right? If this, is a, if this is a manifestation of God, couldn't God have just easily defeated Jacob here? Couldn't God have just easily uh, won the battle with, with Jacob? And the answer, of course, is yes. But the reason that, that he doesn't is because he's He's got a lesson that he wants to teach Jacob. And we see that in the way that this unfolds. And so the figure touches Jacob's hip. Essentially, he, we would think of it today as dislocating Jacob's hip. He dislocates Jacob's hip. He, he, he puts it out of joint, it says, as they wrestled. And then he says, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob holds on knowing, beginning to realize who this figure is, that he has met with God face to face. Jacob is not going to let go until God blesses him. What is it that God wants first before Jacob can truly be blessed? God wants Jacob to essentially let go of the past. And so this is the way that we see it play out in the story. What is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Now, that's, that's a, huge, uh, a huge part of the story here. This is central to our understanding of what's taking place here. God speaks to Jacob here, and he says to him, what is your name? And Jacob, in confessing his name, remember, his name literally means deceiver, cheater, And in saying his name, essentially what Jacob is doing is he's confessing his identity to God. Who are you? I'm a deceiver. I'm a cheater. I want your blessing. I want you to to bless me. Well, who are you? He has to confess the reality of who he is to God here. And in our lives, 
we find ourselves at the point where we encounter God, we find ourselves face to face with a similar situation. That it is not until we are willing to humble ourselves and confess our sin before God, confess who we really are in the eyes of God, and that is that we are sinners. Every one of us, right? The wages of our sin is death. And it's not until we are truly willing to humble ourselves, confess our sin, that we can receive the overwhelming outpouring of God's love and grace that will change the very identity of who we are and change the very nature of who we are. And so Jacob confesses his deception. He confesses his sin. And the way that I would say it is he owned up to the reality of who he was. He owned who he was. I'm a deceiver. I'm a liar. I'm a cheater. But what is it that God says to him here? God says, well, I'm going to change that. No longer are you going to be a cheater. No longer are you going to be a deceiver. But now your name is going to be Israel. Again, in your Bible, you probably find a a footnote attached to the name Israel. And, And you can study that, or you can look down rather and scan down and you can see that this name Israel means strives with God or contends with God. So here's the, here's the reality. Jacob goes from being someone who contends with others to someone who has contended with God and surrendered himself to God. In other words, this is what happens in the story of Jacob. Jacob goes from one who is always looking for a leg up, always looking for something that he doesn't have, always looking for a way to be better than you, to a man who has come face to face with God and has recognized that there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do before God to best him. Rather, I must surrender myself to him. And so Jacob surrenders. He confesses his name. He confesses his identity. He admits who he is. And God changes Jacob. Not only does God do that symbolically, metaphorically, but literally. God gives Jacob a new identity. And that's the final piece of the story here. Jacob received a new identity. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, what we know to be true from Jacob's story is that from this point on, there is a, there's a change that happens in Jacob's life. Jacob crosses over the next day and he encounters his brother Esau, who he thought would be ready to kill him. And instead, it tells us that when Esau saw Jacob, he ran to him and it says that he fell on him and kissed his neck which is just a way to show that Esau, Esau loved his brother and, and lovingly received him. Jacob offers this great offering of all of his household and his goods to his brother Esau to try to pay for, to try to make amends for the thing that has happened between them in the past. And Esau says to him, keep it. I, I, I would rather have you. I'm glad that you're home. And there's restoration that happens in their relationship. And of course, from this point forward, as he's now known as Israel, and especially from Genesis 35 on, which again, God encounters Jacob and again reminds him of his identity and who he is in light of his encounter with God, we see that Jacob becomes the father of a great nation, the nation of Israel. And it's through Jacob and through Jacob's 
lineage, through his offspring, ultimately, that God sends Christ. It's through the nation of Israel that God blesses all of mankind, all of humanity. Jacob was the father of this nation. Why? Because when he met God face to face, God changed who he was. No longer was he a cheater, a deceiver. Now he's the father of a great nation. No longer was he a man that wrestles with everybody who's always looking for uh, a way to be better than everyone else, always looking for a way to, to assert himself. But now he surrendered himself to God. He's an instrument that God uses to send blessing to others. The reality is, again, as we see our own story overlap, laid over the story of Jacob here, when we come to faith in Christ, our identity is transformed as well, which is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. All things are made new. In Christ, our lives are transformed, our identities transformed, so that we are no longer who we once were. But now, by the grace of God, we are changed into something beautiful and new. And when we see that in Jacob's story, it points the way to understanding that same reality in our own story. that God has the power to change who we are. Maybe you've come here this morning and maybe the the reality of your story is that you're a Jacob. You're a contender. You're a a wrestler with it, if you will. And I don't mean physically, but I mean metaphorically, right? You, You just seems like your life is all about the struggle. There's something that's missing. There's some piece to the puzzle that you just can't seem to have in place. There's something in your life that feels like it's just out of sorts and things aren't the way that they, that they should be. Can I tell you that it's not until you come face to face with God and you are willing to confess who you are to Him, till you're willing to admit to Him your sin and confess your sin, that you will receive the grace of God pouring over you like a flood, that that God will come in your life and he will transform you from the inside out, changing your identity. Now, God may not make your name Israel, right? Again, in the literal sense, but God will transform you in the sense that he will change your identity. And the, the pieces of your life that just don't seem to fit, the part of your life that seems to be empty, that seems to be longing for something else, God will fill that void. He will change your identity. He will make you into something beautiful and new by faith if you will surrender yourself to him. That's what he did to Jacob. That's what he wants to do for you. In a moment, we're going to have a time of response to this message, a time of, we call our time of invitation. We stand together and we sing a song. And in that moment, I'll be standing at the front Our staff will be here at the front ready to receive you. Maybe today you recognize that there's never been a time in your life when you have truly surrendered yourself to God. There's never been that time when you have confessed who you are to Him. You've confessed your sin. You've confessed all of that to Him and you've received His grace, transforming you, making you new. My prayer would be that in this time of response today then, that you would surrender your life to Jesus, that you would make Him the Lord, the Savior, that you would receive this fresh start, this new identity that He wants to offer you by surrendering yourself to Him.
And if that's you, during the invitation, as we sing the song, if you'll just come and take one of our staff by the hand and just say simply, I'm ready. I'm ready to start with God, or I'm ready to be changed. I'm ready to be made new. We would love to pray a prayer of faith with you and walk you through the simple steps of surrender that you might confess your sin to God, you might confess Him as Savior and Lord and receive His forgiveness washing over you, transforming you from the inside out. Maybe you're here today and maybe you've confessed your sin and you've, you've received God's forgiveness, but yet the reality is you, you, you still wrestle with the old way, the old self. Listen, Jacob was a changed man from this point forward, but he wasn't a perfect man. He still sinned. He still had problems. He still had issues, some of which were the consequences of his past decisions, and some of it was just a result of the, the sin that continued in his life because he wasn't perfect yet. And yet what we see is that there is this change that takes place. What you need to hear this morning is this truth. You're not perfect. You're not going to be sinless, and yet you can be changed if you will surrender yourself to God and allow His work to take place in your heart and life. And so if that's you today, again, the altars are open for you, our staff are here. We'd love to pray with you, encourage you, offer words of counsel to you as you seek to walk in what it is that God has for you, the identity that He has. It's essential that we see ourselves as God sees us. And when God looks at us, He doesn't see the the, the, the brokenness, the deception of our past. Instead, he sees the work of his son Jesus that was, that was given up as a, as a gift, as a sacrifice, that we might be transformed, that our reality might be forever changed. Today, would you be willing to confess your sin, receive the new identity you have in Christ, and walk in the grace that he gives you? You pray with me. Lord God, as we, as we think on this message, as, we, as we're even now sort of mentally processing all of this, I pray for a stirring of your Holy Spirit in our lives. God, that you would lead us away from our past. As we have wrestled with who we are and the brokenness of our sin, Lord, and that you would lead us into the forgiveness and the transformation that takes place by your grace as we surrender ourselves to you. Lord, if there's anyone here today who's never trusted in you by faith, they've never surrendered themselves to you, I pray that even now, in this moment, Lord, that you would stir their heart. Lord, as we think on our lives and as we, as we see the connection between our story and Jacob's story, I pray that you would use this to show us that there's power when we come to you and we confess who we are and we allow you to do your work in our lives. And so, Lord, may we surrender ourselves. May we not hold on in, in prideful arrogance to who we are and thinking that we'll just be good enough or strong enough ourselves. But Lord, may we surrender ourselves to you, that you may do your work in our hearts and our lives. I pray that you would speak to us now as we respond in obedience to you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.